what a great way to begin a day uh, by worshiping our Heavenly Father. It's always a great thing to be able to do that. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a man in our con- congregation. His name is Mike Henry, and I believe Mike is in our service today. Mike, I know you sit someplace different every Sunday morning intentionally so that you can meet new people. Where are you, Mike? Wave at me if you're in the service. He might be in Sunday school. There he is, right over there. Mike Henry, right over there, is a good friend of mine. Several years ago, Mike began an organization called the Lead Change Group. It started on LinkedIn. And basically, Mike was looking for other people just kind of anywhere that were interested in character-based leadership. And it was interesting what happened with what Mike did. He just kind of put out there, I'm interested in character-based leadership. I'd like to talk about it. Let's start a conversation about it. And in a very short period of time, there were thousands of people all over the world who were interested in this idea of character-based leadership. And, and with character-based leadership, it's this idea that in my, in my workplace, where it is that God has me in my work, and, and, and maybe... Well, well, there are some people who weren't interested in spiritual things, who are or secular people who are interested in character-based leadership also. Wherever I am in my organization, whether I'm the leader, whether I'm a manager, whether I'm just a worker there, I'm just an employee there, how can I use who I am, the character of who I am, to influence success in that organization, to influence myself, to influence others? And really, from a faith perspective, it's a great opportunity for us to start a conversation about faith because everything about character at some point goes back to just this faith-based idea. So here's this group of people that come together around this singular topic of character-based leadership. And Mike never described himself as the leader of that group. He's always described himself as the lead instigator of that group because he wanted in his workplace to instigate something and to instigate something, this conversation online and this conversation in our workplaces. And, And so that group became a website, it became a group of people who would talk about that, they would write about that, and they would try to live that out in their workplace everywhere they went. And that group got together, and some of the people in that group, not all of them, but some of the people got together in that group and said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we wrote a book together? And so uh, there were, there were uh, a number of people who contributed to different chapters of the book, and, and the name of that book is this, it's The Character-Based Leader. You can, can see that right there. The character-based leader. Uh, Mike is one of the authors. He's written a couple of the chapters who are in here. Paige Cole is one of the authors. He's written a chapter that's in here. And, uh, and I'm one of the authors who's in here. I've written a couple of chapters uh, on, in, inside this book as well. And the chapter that I wrote, one of the chapters that I wrote, really kind of gives us a good starting point for our conversation today about Genesis chapter 11. Remember, we've been in the book of Genesis. It's the beginning of things, the beginning of creation, the beginning of sin, the beginning of, well, in this, in this particular passage, the beginning of nations. And, and it's also illustrative, illustrative of something that, that we struggle with on a regular basis. And, and I just want you to notice that, that when it came time, when it came time for them to ask me to write a chapter in the book on character-based leadership, it's not lost on me that, that I wrote the chapter on humility. That's right, right there. I didn't write the book on humility. I just wrote the chapter on humility. I thought I was conceited until I found out I was perfect, right? Yeah. I thought I was wrong once, but I found out I was mistaken. Um, Those kinds of ideas. I wrote the chapter on humility, and really, that's enough about me. What do you think about me? Yeah. Pride and arrogance in our culture. 
really, they just kind of run rampant, don't they? Uh, just that idea that, you know, that really is. It's enough of, enough of me talking about me. What do you think about me? We see it all the time. We see it in social media. We see it on the news. We have politicians who can't get enough of themselves. We have actors who can't get enough of themselves. We've got people who think that simply because they speak, that they have a right to be heard, that just because they're offended, they have a right to change the world, and just because they don't like the way you look or the way you act, that you should adjust, and that everything's all centered on and circled around me, right? Genesis chapter 11 shows us the beginning of that. Actually, you can go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you can make the argument that what Adam and Eve struggled with in the Garden of Eden was a kind of pride. It's the pride that comes from saying, I want to do this my way and I don't care about anybody else's way. And specifically, I don't care about God's way to do this. And so we see in the book of Genesis, we see the beginning of things. And really in Genesis chapter 11, we don't see necessarily the beginning of pride, but we certainly see the effects of pride in the lives of people. The effects of arrogance, the effect of ambition. Ambition's not always wrong, but man, ambition can take you to such a wrong place if it's applied wrongly. And so inside your career, inside your work life or your school life, inside your home life, inside your family life, with your spouse, I know that oftentimes inside our marriages, we'll make the argument that divorces happen for three reasons. It happens because of conflict over money, over sex, and over kids. Those are the three reasons conflict happens, but you can actually take a step further back. Jesus says, when he's, when he's challenged by the Pharisees, when the Pharisees come to him and they say, you know what, uh, Moses said that we could get a divorce, so what do you say about that? They were trying to trip him up, and, and Jesus, being Jesus, did the clever thing that he always does. He says, you know what, the reason why Moses said it was okay for you to get a divorce is because of the hardness of your hearts. If you're considering divorce and it's because of sex or it's because of kids or it's because of money, at some point you've hardened your heart or your spouse has hardened your heart or hardened their heart or in all likelihood you've both hardened your hearts toward God first and then toward one another. And in the hardening of your heart, your way is the only way that matters. Your story is the only story that matters. And anything anyone else might be able to say or contribute to that, in the hardness of your heart, you resist it. And we might point to sex, money, and kids as the reasons, but those are really symptoms of something that Jesus says is a deeper, bigger issue in us, and it's the hardness of our own heart. And that hardening begins when in our pride we say, I want what I want when I want it, and I want what I want right now. And that's where it begins. That's where it begins. And in Genesis chapter 11 is where we see the beginnings of the effect of that pride and that arrogance inside our lives. And so we're going to talk about that today. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And I'm going to ask you, this is something that we do. We like to honor the reading of God's Word by standing. And so if you're a guest with us, we're glad you're here. We're going to invite everybody, if you would, stand where you will as we read God's Word. I'm going to read it out loud. You read along with me. And when I get finished, I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord. And then the congregation responds, praise be to God, because we want to honor the reading of God's Word. We're beginning in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. 
And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. You can be seated. What an incredible passage that is. It's the beginning of nations. We see how nations begin in that passage. Now, there's some important things that we've skipped kind of between Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity, the, the, the entrance of sin, the first sin in creation. We've skipped some things. We skipped the story of Noah and the flood and the, the kind of culture and the kind of people that, 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 that lived in between that time. And so you guys may remember that story from Vacation Bible School. Maybe you have kind of a flannel graph faith. You know, in Vacation Bible School, they use the big flannel graphs to, to show, tell the story of here's Noah and here's the, the, the ark and the animals went in two by two and the people were so wicked and they were so evil and God destroyed the whole world with a flood. And then after the flood, God made this promise, promise I'm never going to destroy the world with a flood like that ever again. I'm just not, I'm just not going to do that. And so maybe you remember that story. And you remember back in Genesis chapter 3 with the first temptation and the first sin, there were consequences to our sin. There were consequences to in our pride, in our arrogance, in our boasting, Adam and Eve looked to God and said, I know I can eat from any tree in the garden, but I'm going to eat from the one tree that you told me not to eat from. And now they're, they're, they're suffering. Humanity is suffering the consequences of that sin. And you and I, we still suffer the consequences of that sin today. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, the consequences were really, they were actually, they're devastating, but they're simple. Before Genesis chapter 3, we didn't have an enemy. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that God put enmity between us and the serpent. And so now we have this enemy who's hateful. And then remember, he looks to the woman and he says that childbirth is, is going to be painful and you're going to want your husband and you're going to want the position that he has and the power that he has and the influence that he has and you're going to long after him and so now family is painful. You have an enemy who's hateful, you have family that's painful. And then he looks to man and he says, and for you work is going to be miserable. You're going to have to work the land and you're going to have to sweat and toil and it's going to be hard and there's going to be stuff that grows in the ground that's not really grown in the ground before that's really going to work against you. And so uh, you're going to have an enemy who's hateful. You're going to have family that's painful. You're going to have work that's miserable. And then the worst effect of them all is God goes, and you can't walk with me anymore. And so now you're separated from God. And in that separation, once that occurred, once sin came into our lives, we became more and more prideful, more and more arrogant, more and more self-centered. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see the consequences and the effect of our sin. And God says the ultimate consequence, the ultimate effect of your sin is death. A spiritual death that separates you from God and then ultimately a physical death that removes your life from this world as you know it. So we see that in Genesis chapter 3. And then in Genesis chapter 6, we see how that pride, that arrogance, and that sin begins to grow throughout the whole world. And the Bible says, well, look at Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 real quick. Genesis chapter 6 Verse 5 is where we're going to go. You'll see it on your screen. It's going to be up here in just a second. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
That's the way the world was before the flood. Before the flood, the intent and every thought of humanity was nothing but evil. And God comes down and He says, your evil has made it all the way to heaven. And He decides to pass judgment on humanity. So first in Genesis chapter 3, the judgment is death, spiritual and physical. And then in Genesis chapter 6, with the flood, it's destruction. I'm not just going to kill you, I'm going to destroy everything humanity has ever made. I'm going to destroy everything humanity has ever made. And that's exactly what God did. He did it with a flood. When the flood was complete, he makes this promise, and it's an incredible promise. He seals it with the rainbow. You may see a rainbow today because it's raining outside. He seals it with a rainbow to say, I'm never ever going to destroy the world with a flood like this ever again. When you get to Genesis chapter 11, you know what you see? Now we're about 100, maybe 125, a little, it's 100 plus years after the flood. So the floods happened. Noah and his family, Japheth, Ham, and Shem, their families, they've been on the ark. The ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat. The waters subside. They come out of the ark. And now about somewhere between four and six generations of people from the flood, from the end of the flood, about 100, maybe 125, 140 years after the flood, in only that amount of time, now we see the pride and the arrogance of humanity rising up one more time in Genesis chapter 11. And Genesis chapter 6, what God said about humanity in Genesis chapter 6, that, that pride that, that, that caused that problem there, is exactly the same problem that we see in Genesis chapter 11. And here's the remarkable thing about God. When God makes a promise, He always keeps it. He's always faithful to His promise, even when we're the ones who are unfaithful to our promise. We're going to see that in greater detail as we look at the covenant that God made with Abram next Sunday. Chris will be here, and he'll talk about the covenant that God made with Abram. And it's a remarkable thing that God did. He makes this covenant promise with His people, and He says, no matter what you do, I'll fulfill my end of the agreement and I'll fulfill your end of the agreement because I am God and I am faithful and I will be faithful whether you're faithful or not. And so God looks at humanity in Genesis chapter 11 and he says, look at what they're doing. They've come together and they're unified around one language. They're unified. The, actually, Genesis chapter 11 verse 1, it's interesting. It says they had one language and one way of speaking. So we all speak English, right? But I went to Europe a few years ago on a mission trip. I went to England a few years ago, and they are thoroughly convinced that I don't speak English at all. They were convinced that I speak redneck. You're from Oklahoma. You speak redneck. They, they didn't understand the jacket that I wore that had boomer written all over it. Boomer to them is a boat. To me, it's a, it's a chant. You know, it's a war cry. Boomer! You know, it's all those things. Can I get a sooner? There we go. Thank you very much. See, we know what we mean when we say that. You come to my house and you ask for a Coke, I'm going to ask you, well, what kind? Right? It could be Dr. Pepper. It could be Mr. Pibb. It could be a Pepsi. But when you say Coke in my house, I'd, it's a soft drink to me. But in your, if you're in Kansas City, if you're in Kansas City, they're going to ask you, what kind of soda do you want? Soda? That's what you put in a milkshake, isn't it? Soda? Isn't that, well, that's, that's weird. So, in Genesis chapter 11, it's not just that they had one speech. They had one way of speaking. When they said Coke, they meant Coke. <laughs> when they said y'all, they meant all y'all. That's exactly what they meant, and they, they understood all of that. But the heart of the people in Genesis chapter 11 was exactly the same as the heart of the people in Genesis chapter 6. The thoughts and intents of their heart was only, were only about 100 years, 125 years after the world has been destroyed by a flood. And God, who is faithful, who never breaks His promises... He says, you know what? It's time for them to experience the consequences of their sin one more time. 
In Genesis chapter 3, it was death. In Genesis chapter 6, it was destruction. In Genesis chapter 11, you know what it is? It's division. And you know, in that division, humanity becomes set against itself. Why? Because we're prideful. We are so prideful. And here's how their pride was expressed. And here's what happens to me and you. What was going on in their hearts is exactly the same thing that goes in our hearts. Because of pride, you make plans apart from God. You do this all the time. I've done this before. Because of pride, you make plans apart from God. You notice it in Genesis chapter 11. They said to themselves, what they were seeking was they were seeking through their unity, they were seeking security and they were seeking eternity and they were seeking a name for themselves. They were seeking security and they were seeking, seeking eternity and they were seeking a name for themselves and they were doing all of that apart from God. You see, God had told them over and over and over again, go forth and multiply and go over all of the earth. Go over the entire world. I want you to go everywhere to every corner of the globe. I want you to go and I want you to subdue this earth. I want you to be a good steward of this planet. I want you to take care of it. And humanity, in our arrogance, because of pride, they made this plan apart from God to ensure their security, to ensure their eternity, and to make this name for themselves. And don't we do sometimes exactly the same thing? We make plans apart from God. We make these plans apart from God, and we say, God, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you've told us. I don't care how you've instructed us. I'm going to do things my way instead of your way. And you see that in the tower that they're trying to build. Actually, in Genesis chapter 10, the reason we know that the, the Tower of Babel took place about 100 to 125 years after the flood is because there's a genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, and it talks about a man named Peleg. Peleg was, was which by the way, if you're pregnant and looking for guys' names, Peleg. There's a great name for you. You should probably consider that. That's a good name to consider. Peleg, it says, was a, he, was, he was born and lived in the time that the tower was being built. And we can, do the ma- we can do the math backwards. We can know that Peleg was about 100 to 125 years after the flood. We can, we can do that. There's another man that's n- mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. And again, if you're looking for baby names, here's another good one. His name was Nimrod. <laughs> There's a character building name for you right there. Hey, Nimrod, get over here. You know, we kind of we use that name like that in that way now. But Nimrod is listed as the king of Babel. He's the king of Babel. And Genesis chapter 10 tells us not only was he the king of Babel, but he was a mighty hunter. And in the original language, the word hunter can be translated either hunter or it could be translated warrior. So technically, Nimrod was a hunter of men. That's what it means. He was a warrior. He was one who hunted men. He wasn't humble. He was the king of Babel. And he said, here's what I want to do. I want, us to, I want to bring us all together for the sake of security. I want to build this tower up to heaven because I want to secure my eternity. And then let's all make this name for ourselves. Well, whose names are the only names we know in association with the Tower of Babel? Peleg, and we can date it by Peleg, and Nimrod, who was the hunter of men. Why would they need security if they're all one, if they have one language and they're all unified? You know what that tells me? It tells me that they may have had one language, but they didn't have unity of heart. They said the same things the same way, but their intent and their heart was focused not on the needs of others. It was focused on their own needs. What did they need security from? They needed security from their king who was the hunter of men. 
Remember, there's a difference between humility and humiliation. Humiliation is the idea that I bow before the king because the king can have me killed. Nimrod, the hunter of men, could have me killed. What did you need security from? You needed security from your very own king. Humility is different than that. Humility is trying to figure out how to use who I am and what I have for the benefit of others. That is not at all what was happening in Genesis chapter 11. And so Nimrod says, come, let's build this incredible city. We don't want to be divided. We don't want to do what God says. We want to make these plans apart from God. And you and I have been there. We've been there and we've done that, haven't we? Did you include God in your plans when you decided where to go to college? Did you, just, did you even ask him? Hey, God, what would you like me to do? Where would you like me to go for college? That problem that you're having with your teenager right now, the struggle that you're facing, before you walked in to have the hard conversation, to bring some challenge to them, the conversation, did, did you even stop once and say, God, what, what do you think needs to be said? How, how should I do this? Right now, you may even be considering a job change. You may be considering moving from one kind of career to another or from one city to another. Has it, has it crossed your mind that God may have an answer for you in that? God may want to know, or God, God may want you to know that he has a direction for you in that. You see, here's the solution to that pride. In our pride, we make plans apart from God. Well, here's the question we should ask. With every major decision, and I would go so far as to say with every minor decision, what's God said? What has God said? in regards to a job change, in regards to your relationship with your spouse, in regards to the conflict that you're having with that friend. What has God said? Well, where can I find that? I can find it in this book. I can find it in the Bible. You know, the Bible tells us that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's Galatians 5, and 23. And you know what's remarkable about it? It says against those things... There is no law. What if that was your filter for every confrontation? How can I grow in my own life and plant in someone else's life the fruit of the Spirit? Why would I want to do that? Well, because against those things, there is no law. What has God said in regards to your career path, the treatment of your boss, the treatment of your employees? the way you interact with your children, the way you act, hey, watch this, now I'm meddling, the way you act on a ball field when your kids are losing and you think it's unfair. Pride causes us. Pride causes us to function in a way that's, that excludes God from our plans. And that's exactly what happened where the Tower of Babel and that plain of Shinar, that's exactly what happened in that place. So there's something else that happens. Because of ambition, because of ambition, you use people to make a name for yourself. Because of ambition, you use people to make a name for yourself. Nimrod, remember, he was the hunter of men. And he says, let's come together, let's build this tower up to heaven. And do you see how much hard work they had to go to just to secure their eternity and just to make a name for themselves? We're going to make bricks and we're going to make mortar. We've got all the resources we need. And by the sweat of our brow, we're going to work our well, ourselves up into heaven. And as we work our way into heaven, we're going to make a name for ourselves. But here we are talking about it and who's the only name we know? Is Nimrod. Well, we know Peleg because it's the date, but Nimrod is the one who is saying, let's make a name for ourselves. And you know what he really meant was, let's make a name for me. The whole world's going to know who I am. 
You know, on uh, social media this week, my wife and kids were all out of town because they were at camps or at grandma's house. And so Monday night I had a little bit of time. And, and uh, so I made a video. And I'm not going to play the video for you, but I made a video. I sang the song from the, it was a theme song to the TV show Psych. And I made this, uh, this video of it and I put it out. And I'm telling you, it's social media, it's like crack for me. I put it out and I couldn't check it fast enough to see, did, did somebody like it? Oh, they liked it. Oh, they just like it. It's, it really is. It's like an addiction. Oh, they liked it. Somebody made a comment. I'm going to like their comment. Maybe they'll like me more, you know. And, oh, it's been viewed a hundred times. Woohoo! I'm famous. I'm internet famous. And then now it's up to 2,100 times. I'm internet famous. And my whole thought about that, I was just doing something silly. I was just being stupid. I had some time on my hands. I, I didn't eat chicken wings and do something crazy after doing that and make a video of that. And some of you will know what I'm talking about when I say that. But I didn't do that, but made this video. And and isn't it true about social media that social media reveals our ambitions, doesn't it? So often the comments we make on social media aren't about helping someone else. They're about drawing the spotlight of attention to us. How many times on Instagram have you looked to see how many likes someone else got and felt badly about yourself because you didn't get as many likes as they did? How many times on Facebook have you gotten on Facebook specifically to see how much you can encourage someone else instead of looking to see how much someone has encouraged you? Social media is not bad. I love it. It's a great place to play. It's a great place to communicate. It's actually a decent place if you know how to run right filters. It's a decent place to get some news. I mean, some, you can see a lot of different opinions, a lot of different ideas, and it's a great place to do those kinds of things. But it does reveal something inside our hearts. Inside our hearts, we have this ambition to make a name for ourselves, just like the people in Genesis chapter 11. So what's the solution to that? Well, we can ask this question. What's the generous choice? What is? What's the generous choice? That's the question we can ask. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 tells us something about God's intent for us. We don't want to make plans apart from God? Well, how do we do that? Well, let's take a look. What does God say about ambition? It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. So, at that moment when you're being ambitious and you feel that pride overtaking your heart, ask the question. What's the generous thing to do? I'm in the middle of this argument with my wife. How in the middle of that argument can I be generous? Is this a moment when I need to ask for forgiveness? Is this a moment when I need to lovingly push forward or lovingly step back? Is this the kind of argument that I need to lose in order to win the relationship? Am I so concerned about having right facts that I'm willing to break a significant relationship because I'm right and they're wrong, I'm smart and they're dumb, I'm big and they're small, I'm, I'm all these things and you are so not. You see how pride sucks us in? It, sets, it, it, it causes us to ignore God's plan and causes us to become ambitious and in our ambition we use people to make a name for ourselves. And couldn't you just ask that question What's the generous thing to do? What's the generous choice to make? To get on social media this week and to make it your goal, not to see how many likes you can get, but how many likes you can give. Not to see what kind of problem or trouble you can stir up, but what kind of peace you can bring. 
Can you step into your workplace and when someone's complaining about a situation or a circumstance in their workplace, can you be the one that when you walk into the room, the reputation that you have is you are a carrier, you are an instrument of grace in that circumstance? Can you be the one who's known in that way? Maybe that's the name we ought to carry. Because you know what? When we're carrying the, the name of grace giver, who is the ultimate grace giver? It's Jesus. When we are the instrument of grace in every situation and circumstance, we're not making a name for ourselves. We're actually promoting the name of our heavenly Father. You see, in Genesis chapter 11, they were trying to make this name for themselves. They were seeking security, and they were seeking eternity, and they were seeking this name for themselves. And really, it was all centered on King Nimrod, who was a hunter of men. And you bowed before the king because the king could have you killed. It's not the kind of God we serve. It's not the kind of king that we have. There's one last thing I want us to see today. This is the biggest one, and this one's tough. Because of arrogance, because of our arrogance, you make God your enemy. That's a big statement. Because of arrogance, you make God your enemy. You know, there's been consequences. God's already talked about consequences. In Genesis chapter 3, family's going to be painful. Work's going to be miserable. We, we see those things. Those are promises. Those are curses that, that we're living. We see the consequences of that all the time. God, in His love and His grace for you, allows you to make the choices that you make and, experiences the cons- and you experience the consequences of those choices. And it's almost like He set this system in place. If you do this, then that. I'm just going to stand back and watch Him do it. Until we get to pride and arrogance. And in James chapter 4, God says this. He actually says it multiple times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God says for many of these sins that they'll commit all these things that they've thought up in their head to do, I'm just going to step back and let them experience the consequences of their sin. But when it comes to pride, God says, nope. When it comes to pride, I'm going to step in and I'm going to stop it. I'm going to stand against you. Can you think of a worse person to have as your enemy than God? Can you think of a greater obstacle, a greater challenge than God himself? I can't imagine what it would be like to live my life in a way trying to figure out how to get past someone who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-holy. But so many of us do that. And in doing so, we make ourselves an enemy of God. It's so interesting, the symmetry that we see inside this story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Humanity is working so hard to get to heaven and to do it apart from God. They're trying so hard to do things their own way and to make a name for themselves and to secure eternity and get their security and, and, and to do these things. They're trying so hard to do that and do that without God. It just takes so much stress and pressure. It's just so hard for them to work their ways to heaven. And then and they, they actually say it like this, come, let us Build this city. Come, let us make these bricks and this mortar. Come, let us build this tower. And there's symmetry in it because in the next set of passages, next, next set of verses, God says almost exactly the same thing. Only when he says it, it's, it's virtually effortless. Come, let us. He's talking about the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Come, let us. Let us go down and 
see what's going on. And he's there. No work, no sweat, no toil. Hey, let's just go. Hey, if I don't step in and resist them, then nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. You know what I think that really means? It means their imagination for sin will go unrestrained. Their imagination for ways to hurt people and to hurt one another and to resist God and to resist grace and to resist everything good in this world, their imagination will go unrestrained. Right now, the Holy Spirit is in our world, and the Bible tells us in the New Testament the Holy Spirit restrains evil in our world. Just look out across our world and look at the evil that you can see today and that's with the Holy Spirit restraining it. That's with the Holy Spirit holding it back. Imagine what this place would be like without that restraint. If I don't step in, God says, and do something, their imagination for evil will go unrestrained. The atrocities we see in our world today are so terrible but they don't begin to scratch the surface of the imagination we have for ways to hurt ourselves and to hurt other people. Imagine, just imagine what it would be like had God not stepped in. And it's, it's funny, he says, here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to divide their languages. And it doesn't actually ever say that he, that he does it. It just says, God says, I have the intent. Here's my intention, I'm going to divide their languages, and it's done. You see humanity working so hard to get to God, and God effortlessly shows up where man is. You see man working so hard to make a name for himself, and God effortlessly goes, here I am, and I'm going to divide your languages, and it's done. The thought and intent of his heart for us is good, and it happens. And so here's the, here's the question that helps us overcome that arrogance in our life. Because of arrogance, we make ourselves an enemy of God. Here's the question we need to ask. What's your next step of faith? What is your next step of faith? For some of you, that next step of faith is to place your faith in Christ in the first place. You've been wondering whether or not God can be trusted. Well, He can. He keeps His promises even when you don't. You've wondered whether or not God loves you. Well, He does. He loves you with an everlasting love. And Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while you were still rejecting Him, while you were still sinning, while you still said, God, leave me alone, I want to do it my own way, He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and to take the penalty and the punishment for your sin and for mine. We said it earlier in the service. Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And that's the reason why you can be forgiven. Maybe your next step of faith is actually your first step of faith. Today, we get to celebrate baptism right after the second service. Baptism is a new believer's way of saying, I belong to Jesus. That's what it is. It's, a, I, it's just telling the world, I belong to Jesus. And baptism is not the mechanism that saves you. It's the symbol that shows that God has done something transformative. God has done something remarkable in your life. It's the way you tell people, I belong to Jesus. Some of you have made that faith commitment. You've said, I belong to Jesus. I've trusted in him. But you've resisted the idea that you're going to be baptized or that you need to be baptized, why would you do that? 
It's your next step of faith. Others would say it's your first step of obedience. Jesus was baptized, even though he didn't need to be. He did it as an example to us of the new life that we can have in Christ. What if today you were baptized at the end of this service, at the end of, at, 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 uh, at 12 o'clock, you could go to the Fellowship Hall. Actually, at 1030, I'm sorry, I got the, the, the time wrong. At 1030 today, you could go to Fellowship Hall and say, you know what, that's my next step of faith. I don't know why I'm waiting. The only reason I'm waiting is maybe because I've, uh, I've, I've just kind of said, I don't want to be in front of people. I don't, I don't know. You've got reasons. Everybody's got reasons, right? We've always got reasons for why we do things. I've got reasons for why I've done it and why I haven't done it. But I ask this question, what's my next step of faith? I need to be baptized at 1030. Go to Fellowship Hall. Just tell them, I need to be baptized. I need to tell the world that I belong to Jesus. We've got shorts for you. We've got shirts for you. You don't have anything to worry about. You can be baptized today. In just a moment, we'll have an invitation. You could come forward at this invitation. Talk to someone down front and say, I just need to be baptized. You could, you could do that. Maybe that's your next step of faith. Maybe your next step of faith is to go apologize to someone. Maybe your next step of faith is to forgive someone. Maybe your next step of faith is to just have that conversation with your child, a grace-filled conversation with your child that lets them know how much you love them and how proud you are of them because you've never said those words out loud. Maybe that's your next step of faith. You know what? Every time, every time God brings that next step of faith into your life and you say no, that, that's an act of pride and of ambition and of arrogance. And God says, I will stand against you. The tower that was built in Babel was a tower of confusion. But the grace that God gives is the grace of clarity. And you can receive that clarity today. What's your next step of faith? I'd like to invite us to pray for just a moment. If you would bow your head and close your eyes. I think when we hear words from Scripture like this, that we need to respond. And maybe today your next step of faith is to be baptized. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing. And, and if you want to be baptized, just come forward, tell one of these guys, and they'll help you get to the right place so that you can be a part of that baptism service at 1230 today. Maybe your next step of faith is your first step of faith, to surrender to your Heavenly Father and to place your faith in Christ and say, God, I know I need your forgiveness. Forgive me. I promise you that when you ask him to forgive you, that he will. That's what the scripture tells us, and he always keeps his promises. Maybe your next step of faith is to ask forgiveness for someone or to give someone forgiveness. Maybe it's a conversation you need to have. Maybe it's an, a moment at this altar that you just simply need to pray and say to your heavenly Father, God, I, just, I need to recommit my life. I need to recommit my life to you. I don't want to resist you anymore. In this moment of invitation, give your life to him. Surrender to your next step of faith. Father,